Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Happy New Year. And as we ring in 2020, this is a great episode to get started with. Maxine Ryan is the co-founder and COO of BitSpark. What's BitSpark? Well, I'll tell you. What they are doing is bringing about mass adoption through one of Bitcoin's most killer apps, and that's Money Remittance, focusing on money moving between Malaysia, the US, Hong Kong, China, all over the world. They're not just doing it by partnering with various different companies. They're building an end-to-end infrastructure, cash in to cash out, using Bitcoin from location to location. So in 2014, when they launched, they were the first company where you can go with cash in Hong Kong and then get cash back in the Philippines using the Bitcoin network. And that's why it's so important to understand that in order for us to really build this whole new financial infrastructure, we can't just partner and rely on existing payment rail companies. We have to build them ourselves. But it's fucking hard. Who wants to do that? Well, Maxine does. We talked about how she dropped out of school, dropped out of university like a few months before getting her degree because she said, oh, I just thought that this is not for me. And this blockchain technology thing, this Bitcoin thing, this is something I really want to pursue. That's what she said to herself. And then she left. We talked about how there's a growing amount of women joining the industry. And we talked about how it's changing. It's changing of the people that are in this industry and how we're moving forward. Her LinkedIn experience shows very little because she literally went from dropping out of school to being the COO of such a major company. I was very impressed by her understanding, her grounding and her knowledge on her industry and She was able to give an insight into what is going on in Hong Kong, what is going on in Asia, and how Asia is really adopting crypto faster than we are in America and in Europe. So enjoy the ads. Happy New Year, guys. Give some love to my sponsors, and I promise you're going to love the episode with Maxine. Talk to you guys in a second. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit BitPay.com forward slash charlie it's such an easy card to use you get the card in the mail you download the bitpay app you put bitcoin on the app and when you want to send bitcoin from the app into your debit card it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered it's really so easy you almost wonder like why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launch. Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like. 
Um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees and I don't like that. So check it out. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. That's BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. You're a super loyal podcast listener and you've been listening to my show for a while. So you know that Bitpanda, which is a company based out of Austria, has been working with me for a few months now. And I'm a huge fan of Vienna and I'm a huge fan of Bitpanda. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. Their core product is an easy to use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker. They have over a million users, so you know they really care about their customers. What's amazing about Bitpanda is really how easy it is to set up an account and get going. They recently launched their own educational platform, and this is super cool, so check it out. Take a listen for a second, where you can learn all about Bitcoin and more. It's free, regularly updated, and you can earn five euro for free when you complete the quiz. So make sure you check it out, bitpanda.com. They are a big sponsor of ours, and please give them some love because they love me. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo, our newest sponsor of Untold Stories. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content, and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really, really like. It's fast and simple, and it's the first crypto-powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google app stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. Pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. There are a lot of different subjects that have been you know, spoken about over the past decade in crypto. And, and as the course of this show goes on, I'm going to start referring to this as the decade of crypto because I'm tired of saying eight or nine years. Let's just let's just round up. We're very fortunate to have on our show today, Maxine Ryan, who is the founder and chief operating officer of BitSpark. Maxine, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. So you're you're coming in from from Hong Kong with us here. And there's a lot going on on Hong Kong. Usually, uh, I wasn't planning on kind of going over current events. Um, I usually almost never do current events because I like the show to be timeless. But I think that what's going on is worth 
uh, speaking about. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you what my first question is. I interviewed someone, and we had him on the show a few weeks ago, and it was a it was a phenomenal episode. And he he also his company is based out of Hong Kong. A lot of a lot of Bitcoin companies, a lot of crypto companies in general, have launched and moved to Hong Kong over the years. So I asked him the same question when we first started the show. Um, do you do you still see what's going on as, in Hong Kong as a temporary situation, or do you see long term, you know, erode, er, you know, the erosion of companies kind of moving to Singapore now? Bitcoin. I'm talking about crypto in general, not specifically the tech industry, but. You know, you're you're very much part of probably lead the crypto community in Hong Kong. What's going on over there? What are you guys feeling? Well, um, actually, it's quite surprising because up until a week ago, it was pretty dire for people in Hong Kong and especially uh, for obviously the protesters. Um, but we just had the local elections here of which 17 out of 18 were pro-democracy uh, seats. Um, and that has somehow subsided the quite, uh, I guess, uh, quite aggressive protesting that we've been seeing recently, um, where it did kind of put in question whether Hong Kong was a place that crypto companies and companies in general could do business. Um, but you know what? I think that really when we're talking about cryptocurrency companies, uh, we're really referring to the legal landscape around this because in so many other jurisdictions, you do not get the the legal or the regulatory framework that you do get in Hong Kong, where in Hong Kong, it is just generally still a free market. So I think there's a kind of a distinction here is that if you're looking in something like uh, traditional finance or uh, real estate, uh, transport, these types of industries are being affected by the protests. But if you're talking something about cryptocurrency, then I don't think that these companies have been that much affected, mostly because they're in Hong Kong for operational and uh, regulatory reasons, rather than it being a place where they actually do business in itself. It's almost like it's almost like asking a uh, like a journalist who goes out into war zones and asks them if like Afghanistan is safe. Yeah, um, I guess the risk threshold for someone like that is a little bit different. So, is what you're saying that the the risk threshold or what? crypto companies are looking for, I guess they're more versatile. So what's going on in Hong Kong, they're saying, or you're saying, it's still worth being here because of the other pros, those being the regulatory landscapes, probably amazing food, good talent, you know, good people and things like that. So it's still, I guess, worth it for you. But I guess, do you think, um, and I don't know if this answer can be, this question can be answered. Honestly, do you think that I mean, you love Hong Kong. I love Hong Kong. Um, do you think that that's people are going to take a step back now and say, OK, like we're looking to open up another office. Maybe let's do it in um, in Singapore or Taiwan or somewhere else other than Hong Kong. And I hope this is not the case. But do you think now that it's people are questioning it based on, you know, how the Western media has portrayed the the unrest over the past few months? That is a good question, but I think that it really comes down to the landscape in the space right now. I see a lot more consolidation than new businesses trying to find places to operate. Um, so I think that cryptocurrency companies in Hong Kong that are already established are pretty comfortable with staying here. And I know that a lot of cryptocurrency, um, just people in the industry, are not that scared of coming to Hong Kong. Even though there is kind of the escalations of the protests and the police brutality here, 
uh, overall, it is quite safe as long as you're not involved in the protest in itself. So it's so funny that you say that because I'm in a bunch of different chat groups and, and now everyone's talking about how cheap the flights are and they're so excited. Well, yes, the, the, the funny thing is, is that I've been living in Hong Kong pretty much all my life. Um, I'm half Chinese and I'm actually like I can finally walk down the street without people touching me and without like my shoulders rubbing against people. So I'm actually quite delighted. The cheap like the flights are cheaper, like you said, rent's cheaper. Everything in Hong Kong has kind of gotten like normal uh, in terms of the economic situation and the spending situation. So, um, but maybe that's just people who are in the crypto space who are particularly, you know, enthusiastic about <laughs> things changing uh, when it comes to cost. But yeah, I mean, I've certainly seen some benefits. Um, it's not as busy in Hong Kong anymore. About, I believe in Hong Kong, about 70 million, uh, we experienced 70 million of, um, tourists every single year. And about 60% of them are actually from mainland China. Uh, now, you know, a lot of mainland Chinese are no longer coming to Hong Kong for obvious reasons, but it just means that the streets are a lot more quieter. Um, and Hong Kong has become a little bit more peaceful just in terms of your daily life. It's like summertime in Florida. <laughs> it's amazing. If summer comes, as soon as June comes, Wayne knows he's, he's in the other room. As soon as um, summertime comes here, it gets super quiet. There's no traffic. Uh, all the prices go down on everything. But now, as of like last week, our season starts. So from November to maybe May, it just our population triples. And it's just insane. You see license plates from every other state but Florida. Um, but you've done you've done an amazing thing with BitSpark. And it wasn't until probably about six months to a year ago that I started taking notice and following the company. You guys launched in 2014. So first of all, before anything, congratulations, because running any company, crypto or not, especially a crypto company for six years is a feat and is amazing in and of itself. So firstly, congratulations with that. Thank you so much. Um, it's been an incredible journey this entire time. And yeah, I'm super proud of you know my team uh, that we've been kind of going at it for this long because what we're building here isn't something that you can just build over a year. It really is an entire infrastructure, which we can go into later. But thank you. No, and, and you can't. And and thank you for you're making it very easy for me to transition, like because you're, you're bringing up the points that I want to bring up. But that's <laughs> that's exactly the point. The difference from what from my research and from from following, it's not you're not just another middleman. And I want you, if you can, after my question, after this one, to explain uh, to our listeners why. But essentially, BitSpark is not just another middleman. You, you decided early on and symbolically by doing the first ever fully like it, with fully within your system, the first cash in like physical cash cash in Hong Kong and cash out in the Philippines back in 2014, symbolically to show remittance. But um, you decided to not work with a lot of different of these um, companies that allow you to have a, a big ground force, you know, for example, a MoneyGram or Western Union or one of these Payomatic or one of these type of companies where uh, someone can walk in and use one of their machines or use one of those tellers. You've decided to to literally allow your customers to be these people, uh, you know, essentially becoming BitSpark cash points. Um, but before we get into any of that, my research does not give me much information about you. Um, 
And and this is the point of the show is we talked we talk about the person directly as you know. Um, tell us about you, where you were born, where you grew up, and understand that every single one of my guests has a lot bigger of a LinkedIn history than you. It literally goes from like <laughs> your LinkedIn history literally says that you went to college for two years and then you launched the company. That, that's their whole history. So who is Maxine? Uh, so I'm just laughing because it's just, it's true. Um, yeah, so essentially I, I'm born and raised in Hong Kong. Um, I come from a kind of a modest entrepreneurial background with my family. Um, my grandfather was a civil engineer from Australia who moved to Hong Kong. Um, and he decided to actually quit his engineering job, uh, a civil engineer that was paying him quite well and open up a bakery uh, in a small coastal town in Hong Kong called Sai Kong. Um, so, you know, my upbringing was really kind of in this bakery and running around and kind of seeing my mom take over that business and so on and so forth. And what kind of bakery? Um, it was actually just a Western bakery. Uh, my grandfather was kind of, I guess, serving the market of the expat community that was in Hong Kong. Um, and I think it was one of the first Western bakeries that opened in Hong Kong itself. So that bakery still exists. It's just owned by um, uh, some new owners now. But really, you know, I kind of saw my grandfather and then also my mother, uh, you know, be entrepreneurs themselves. Um, and when I when I looked, had your family went to college? Yeah, yeah, my my family went to college. Um, and I guess my background was born and raised in Hong Kong. Uh, I went to Australia for university and I was studying my degree of international relations and political science. And I really felt as though I was actually going to go into government, which I really laugh at now um, <laughs> because everything that I had learned in that three and a half years before I dropped out um, was that I wanted nothing to do with that system because I didn't feel as though that system was a system of change. And I was really looking for societal change. Um, so essentially... Hang on. Mm -hmm. I just want to ask you, a lot of people will, will still go your route because they believe that. And, and up until Satoshi released the white paper, um, I agreed. Uh, up until then, I did agree with the statement. And the statement is that to, to make the best lasting change in government, it's better to join the government. So like you, when I was in school, I thought about potentially joining, you know, local government. Obviously, when I became a felon, you can't really do that anymore. But but I see your point. Yeah, it's. I, I felt that it was kind of the only way to make direct change. Um, and I even kind of flirted with the idea of being a politician, something like that. And um, I don't know, I guess the, the more I went into my degree, the more I felt like I was completely helpless to do the change that I wanted to do. And then along came Bitcoin, right? So... Um, I was about six months from graduating and during, I think about four months before the time that I made the leap, I had just moved into a, uh, a new house and my housemate at that time is actually my business partner now, George Harrop, who's the co-founder of Bitspark as well. And I'm not sure how he came to the conversation, but he said that he was mining Bitcoin and I had never heard that word before. And it ended up being about a six-hour conversation that night. And I just never went back to university um, pretty much after that day. What so, do you mean? 
Well, the thing is, the things that I was learning about Bitcoin and just that conversation in general was so educational in every way possible in terms of, you know, how the world works, how money works, the economy, you know, just everything that I was just grasped by the idea so much so that I just didn't feel as though going back to university was going to be the route for me. You fell in love with this technology so much that with less than a year left of university, you decided to just, you know, follow your passion. Exactly. And, you know, George at the time, he was already thinking, okay, well, maybe it could be an exchange and all this type of stuff. And I just remember saying to him, like, when are we going to do this? Because it was just such a huge opportunity that I just felt as though I could not possibly go back and finish my degree and all that type of stuff. Like there was something right there in front of me that I felt like I was looking for. So, you know, a bit of context to this, it was about three and a half years into my degree. And I was getting to the point where I was like, holy crap, six months from now, I'm going to be graduating into a career that I don't want. I'm going to be working for government that I think is not possible to change anything. So I think that it was that anxiety of, you know, what my future could have looked like. And then this opportunity popped up, which was Bitcoin at that time. Um, and it's Do you still, ever think of going back to school to get like a doctorate or something or just get your degree? No, I just feel like I learned so much more from what I'm doing now than I ever have. And I've also achieved a lot more than I think the average person my age has been able to do. Um, I was thinking of going back to school to get my doctorate just so people on this show would have to call me Dr. <laughs> I mean, you could just go online to like, you know, some... that's what I'm Googling right now. <laughs> What's the easiest subject? Cause I have a, I have a master of science, so I just need to get to the next well, level. I, I have a piece of like small square space of um, land in Scotland. So technically people have to call me lady. <laughs> I, oh, that's, I didn't know that. That's yeah. so cool. Okay, cool. So, um, so, so there was that point in your life and you had six months, and this is very interesting. You had, you had a few months left of school and um, you met your business partner and you decided that you guys vibe well together and you're going to launch this company with him. Is that how kind of it, 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 it came to be? Did you talk to your parents? I mean, how did they feel about this? Yeah, it was, um, it was kind of a strange one. I just remember being on a Skype call with my mom and I just said to her, you know, at that time I was, you know, working a full-time job and everything like that. So I was already very independent and had been. What were you doing? Me. Um, I think I was just yeah, working in retail and managing some stores that were in that, uh, the place that I was where my university was. Um, you need to put that on your LinkedIn. <laughs> I don't think they want to be associated with me, but um, that'd be fine. Maybe I should. Uh, but yeah, I remember just kind of telling her, Hey, I'm, going to quit my degree and I'm going to come back to Hong Kong uh, potentially. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, I can always go back. So I think that was kind of my rationale. Um, and I, I said to myself, you know, I was going to give it two years and I felt, and I said that if I didn't make enough ground in two years to justify me continuing, then I would go back. So I already had a game plan just in case. Okay, two year two years after that was like 2016, 2017, the, the barest of bear markets that we've ever had. Did you say to yourself, like, maybe I'm not doing the right thing here two years later? No, because it, it was just never about the price. Um, and it was never about speculation. 
Because wow. in 2014, we had already done the world's first cash-in, cash-out Bitcoin transfer in the world to the most rural places in Philippines from the center of Hong Kong. So I had already seen kind of the, the value that it brings to just normal, everyday people. You know, I, I, I think I've told the story a few times, but our first ever customer sent 10,000 Hong Kong dollars with us, and she was a domestic helper. She knew nothing about crypto. And, you know, we just had a better rate than everybody that was around us in this kind of epicenter of money transfers uh, in this building. And um, I was like, why are you sending so much money just out of curiosity? Because usually the transfer sizes are about, you know, 2,000, 3,000 Hong Kong dollars. And she said that it was for her wedding. And with the cost savings, it saved her about one to two seats at her wedding. So, wow. Yeah. So, oh my God, this is a crazy story. I never heard of this before. Yeah. It, and I think the thing is like, that was so profound to me that it didn't, I, I didn't even check the price. You know, I was buying Bitcoin, but I was never, you know, religiously or obsessively checking the price because I just knew what it was capable of. Well, you have one of the only few businesses in the space, uh, actual infrastructure companies where it doesn't really matter. You're using crypto as a as an infrastructure method. And so this is what I wanted to ask you. Um, I say a lot of things on the show that I get that I get flack for. And I'm going to say this again. Um not again, I'm going to say this for the first time, that I think, and I think that in the early days of, I think that the whole space would be different if Bitcoin in the first three years of its existence was taken seriously more in non-Western countries. I'll tell you why I say that. And that would mean that myself wouldn't have never gotten involved. But the reason I say that is because I feel like Western countries need crypto less. And the story you just told me was pro- is probably such a, a driver of motivation for you. And it's probably not the only one. But if you ask the CEOs of your, you know, colleague companies or, you know, companies uh, based out of the U.S. that are trying to do remittance or whatever, they won't tell you stories like that simply because they don't exist. Um, you're seeing you're seeing in, in, in Asia, you're seeing in, in countries that we've spoken about earlier, like Philippines, you see in Australia, you see in Eastern Europe, you see the adopt in India so much bigger because they actually need it. Whereas we need it too, don't get me wrong. But the faith in we the faith that we have in our economic system and you know the stability we have right now, you know, whether it's manipulated or, or it's actually real or not, is there. So I guess the need for it is a little bit different. Would you would you agree with that? I would a hundred percent agree. Um I think that a lot of the growth that we've seen in crypto, mostly to do with exchanges, uh, at the beginning was you know, US-centric companies. And then also on the retail sense, it was US-centric companies. But the thing is with these US-centric companies, especially when you're talking about buying and selling cryptocurrency, are still connected to the banking system. And I think that's actually the biggest differentiator between, you know, Asian markets and the US market is that the US market bank account penetration is actually extremely high to the point where you can integrate cryptocurrency products with bank accounts if they're um, if they have a good enough connection. But the issue there is that when you try to expand these US-centric models into Asia, they just don't work because I think it's something like less than 30% 
of the Asia population have a bank account. And that means that if you don't have a bank account, you don't have access to basic financial services, which is where cryptocurrency comes in. Banking has been one of those things that if you try to start a company in the U.S., and you don't have a bank account for crypto, you're done. You can't even you can't even start. Um, and so what you're saying is that it's completely different in Asia. And so you've how have you done this with Bitspark? How have you been able to create like an end to end point infrastructure, um, a financial services uh, type of situation without needing to rely on banks? How did you do that? And I guess, why? Yeah, I think that's, that's a good question. You know, when we first started, we were like, you know, we have to be an exchange because we have to be able to exchange different currencies. But then when it actually came to it, it wasn't just a build it and they will come, you know, methodology. And then we we're going, okay, well, if we want to help people send money, then, you know, how do they actually send money? So we had to really deep dive into the money transfer industry and understand how physical cash moves around the world. And that really was the first principle that we started at Bitspark with, was truly understanding how money is traveling, why people are sending it, why are they willing to pay huge prices to send money overseas, even though they're paid quite little, and then taking that model and then applying cryptocurrency to it. Now, cryptocurrency itself when you're sending it wallet to wallet is perfectly fine. It does work as a means of transfer if you are okay with paying with things for cryptocurrency. But when we're talking about the average person, I'm not just talking about you know people who are doing remittances or money transfers, just the average person still, especially in Asia, still uses cash. So we had to figure out how to connect cash to cryptocurrency. Now- And then back to cash. And then back to cash. So there's a lot of So how do you utilize how do you do that? How do you how do you do that? I don't know yeah. how to rephrase my question. And, how do yeah, you do that? I, I'll go into it right now. So the thing is we're talking about something that's quite complex. You have to have the person be able to cash in at a physical location. You have to be able to provide them something that is stable, which they're comfortable with, which is why stable coins are very fascinating, and that's why we have stable coins at Bitspark. Then they have to be able to exchange that stable coin for another currency, another stable coin, and then cash out that stable coin. So not only do you have to care and build the network of people, which we call cash points, that are able to provide this cash in, cash out functionality of exchanging you know, physical cash into something that's digital, but then you also have to build the liquidity pools that facilitate money transfers in itself, which is why we have the centralized exchange that our application layer is connected to. So when a person works, walks into a cash point store, they're both, both interfacing with each other with the BitSpark app. One person is a person who has a digital balance that is willing to take cash. And they basically do an exchange. The cash point earns a percentage of that. And then once the person has the stable coin in their app, they're then able to exchange it. You know, they could buy just Bitcoin. They could exchange it. They could send it to friends and family in rural Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, and all our other countries. And they can cash it out very much like they cashed in. So that's a very simplified way to explain what we do. We are a bankless fiat on an off-ramp. But really what we've been building for the last five years 
is the infrastructure and being able to connect just normal everyday people to this technology itself. Give us some untold data. Um, it's a little bit of a it's, untold data is a concept that I just made up at the moment. And I'm going to start asking, you're going to be the first one. Um, oh, no. I don't know why I've not done this before. <laughs> Um, it doesn't need to be like secret or private data, but I should call it, you know, untold insight. Maybe instead, that's a better word for it. I'll let the I'll let the listeners decide. But give me the untold data. Give us the untold insight into BitSpark. What type of not just BitSpark, but, but you have data that the global crypto world would love to know. Tell us what type of demographics are using BitSpark on a day to day basis. Who are the types of people? What are they using BitSpark for and crypto for? You know, the average transaction size, like tell us about the people. Yeah, it's really fascinating because I think that we have a range of people. Um, We have just kind of like the regular crypto folk. They're doing quite large transactions when they're buying and selling crypto with cash. Um, Currently in Hong Kong, local Bitcoins, which was actually the largest cash to crypto provider, recently closed down their cash services. So that just left BitSpark available in Hong Kong. So we saw a lot of uptick of our crypto company, sorry, our crypto customers start to use us. And there's the interesting thing is that they actually don't use our cash points. They use our vaulting system because the transfer. What's that? So we have a vault in Hong Kong that acts much like a cash point does that just uh, deals with much larger transactions because very big transactions, like a hundred thousand, in Hong Kong dollars can't really be done at a physical cash point or at a P2P location. It's just not very secure to do. It's so, like the old days of Bitcoin when people had <laughs> suitcases and paper bags filled with cash. Yeah. And so people go to our vault to do that. So since local Bitcoin shut down, we had a lot more people uh, uptick of cryptocurrency uh, uh, users, essentially. But you know, to dial it back, we actually have a lot of uh, API money transfer companies connecting to our API, and their customers have no idea that they're using BitSpark. And the lowest transaction that we've been able to help these money transfer companies send, which they would not be able to do with, you know, Swift or anything else, was about three dollars. So we were able to cash in and cash out three USD, three dollars USD, which is extremely low. And um, we're finding that. You know, because our rates are so good and because people are able to send a small amount of money through these APIs that these money transfers are connected to, um, they're saying to us that instead of customers sending larger transactions, they're actually sending smaller transactions, but more frequently, which was really fascinating to me because essentially these people, um, when they're sending money, they really have to pay by the game or by the rules that these money transfer companies allow them. So. That means that you have to have a threshold of which you're sending. Uh, but with us, there's been an uptick of people smalling sender tr- uh, smaller transactions. And I suspect that's because it gives them more power to be able to control their finances instead of sending it a big lump sum to somebody, uh, to like your loved one overseas or anything like that. They're able to send, you know, $20 or $3 at a time. So that was really interesting. You know, one more really interesting thing was that uh, we have kind of microgrid companies starting to use us for the most rural parts uh, where there is no financial infrastructure for people to be able to pay their bills. And all they have to do is just get one BitSpark agent and people are able to send a dollar USD 
using BitSpark and pay for, you know, their solar bill or the electricity bill. I was going to ask you something else, but what, what the hell is a microgrid company? How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. That's BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them and we have been for a few months now. They love me and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters, a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully 
not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. What the hell is a microgrid company? I've never heard of this before. <laughs> yeah, so uh, microgrid companies are essentially companies that are providing, um, you know, electricity uh, through solar or other environmentally friendly needs, but they solely focus on rural areas where um, power grids or like the traditional power grids can't really get to. So there's a lot of neglected kind of societies that are more on like the fringes of cities that aren't able to access electricity. And we have companies who are providing electricity through solar with solar panels on the roof and stuff like that. But the number one problem that these microgrid companies have is that they can't, there's no, there's nowhere for people to pay for the electricity from the solar. So we had people coming oh. up to us for that. Are these are these companies related to the government? Are they state companies or are they private? No, they're all private. Okay, so basically in the absence of government, you know, who will build the roads as they say, right? <laughs> like that whole libertarian um, saying, um, who will build the roads? In the absence of the government providing utilities and resources, here we have these microgrid companies, private companies offering um, – services. And very similar to what you're doing, right? I consider you one of those companies because let's go back to like what you said earlier with banking penetration. In the absence of good banking penetration, people have been using cash. I want to ask you why there is not a cash stigma, you know, a negative one as we have here in the US. But before I do ask that, um, why, why don't people trust their banks is that the reason that banking penetration has is, is not high or am, am I making that up or is there another reason? Why is the infrastructure for banking not as prevalent for a, 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 you know, a middle class main street type person in Hong Kong or in, in other countries that you operate in? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And I think there is kind of a misconception that the world is going cashless. Yes, some places are going cashless, but predominantly in Asia, we love cash here. And I think but cash I is popular because there is sort of like a systemic mistrust of you know financial services here for the middle class. Um, now, this was really interesting when we went to Tajikistan, I think it was like 2017. And there was such systemic mistrust of banks there that people would rather keep their money under a mattress and hire a random taxi driver they don't even know to drive to places to transfer money, in quotes, than, you know, put their money into a bank. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. They're using taxi drivers as blockchains? Yeah, they would prefer to use a taxi driver 
than they would to try to get to send money than a bank. And this was in Tajikistan. So I want to I want to go into this a little bit more. So why? Hold on. This is blowing my mind for a second. This is brilliant. So people there trust or they believe that a taxi driver wants to maintain business to keep doing this same job as, you know, ferrying money from per and acting as a as a as a wire transfer system that they would trust their money with this random person because the incentive is this person would continue wanting to do business so they wouldn't steal, right? So people would trust this person or these these people over the banking system? Correct. But to be fair, the Tajikistani banking system is not the most trustworthy in the world, so I'm not surprised. But yeah, essentially that's it and I think that in Asia there is a lot more trust. It's um and it's kind of strange because if you think about cryptocurrency it's all about being trustless, but in Asia itself I don't think there's so much of a trust issue. It's okay to trust people in Asia as long as they don't do you wrong or anything like that. And I think maybe that's why like cash is still popular and cash people still want to hold cash. Um also cash is more liquid. Um and yeah, it's, it's it's different though, and I and I do like I like the I like this, and I'm not going to generalize, but in my experiences personally, when I've worked with companies in Asia, and you probably would agree with me on this, I feel like it's, you know, it's a, it's a they will trust you at first. You'll try to do business, but if you're out, you're out. Like if you yeah. screw them or if you do something shady, once you're out, you're fucking out. Yeah, exactly. There's there's no it's very black and white. So I think that because I love that. it is very black and white, you don't screw up. Um so you know, do you want to keep your money in a bank where maybe you're not going to be able to take it out for whatever reason? Like, you know, people are having their bank accounts closed for no reason in Hong Kong at the moment. Um and essentially or do you want to just like hold cash and have cash? And I think a lot of people are more interested in cash. Now, the, the cool thing about cryptocurrency is that it's almost like having cash, but just digital because you still with own wings. it. Yeah, with wings. Um, and instead By the of way, having... I copyrighted that quote. You can't use it. Cash <laughs> with wings. Uh, um, you know, and, and instead of, you know, getting having like a taxi driver and this whole trust thing is that you just have it in your wallet and that wallet is your digital wallet. And I think that's kind of where we're going to be seeing the adoption of cryptocurrency is going to be more so in Asia and in Africa, because cash is very normal for them, but there's also this mistrust of government and um, the financial sector. So I think it's all of that mirroring together with the fact that there's companies like BitSpark making that possible now. Also, like with BitPesa as well, they're doing an amazing job. Um, you know, you're, you're getting this kind of this, this crossroads where you're finally having the infrastructure that's there. You're having a... A society that is finally, you know, willing to go digital, but they still don't trust the banking system or the governmental system. So there's all these kind of factors kind of tying in that I see probably in the next year or, you know, at least the next five years where we'll actually see, you know, adoption of cryptocurrency become real. So you've said basically, instead of trying to like overtake the current financial global system that exists, you've decided to um, find the problem spots, the weak links in the global financial system, build a better product, build a better system. And essentially you will succeed when, well, you are succeeding, but essentially you're basically giving people a choice 
And they're going to obviously choose you because it's a better choice. And that's how you win, by giving people a better choice voluntarily. Very libertarian, by the way. But voluntarily giving people a better option, letting them use your option. And you do this without violence and on a fair playing field by by just having a better product. Exactly. So the question I... So the question I have for you is, and you've you've talked about this before. I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read a quote you wrote. You wrote this was a few years ago. You said, "Since we're in a technical space, it was important to make sure our products were accessible to the users. If you mention Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, people might have uh, preconceptions. If they had used it before and it was difficult to use, the barrier to entry in this area can be quite high. Do you still feel that way?" Um, yeah, I, I do. I don't think that it's it's hard when somebody's using BitSpark, but I definitely have tried to use other services and it's still very much leading with crypto. You that outside of the crypto space, people just don't care about crypto. They just don't. And as much as you can, you know, try to tell them, hey, this is like better money and all this type of stuff, they just care about, hey, is this gonna be able to send money or do I what I wanna do right now? It's much it's it's much like when you're searching on the internet right? You just want to get straight to the point. You don't want to have all these ads on all these like things before you telling you what you think that what they think that you want to know. You just want to go straight to the source. So I think that a lot of companies at the moment are still very much leading with, hey, like here's a trendy cryptocurrency company. Um, But people kind of shy away from that and they attract more crypto people. Now that's fine. But we can't just keep on feeding off the same crypto space. Like we have to break out of what the market currently is and get this to everyday people. And I think that at the end of the day, like if you build a product that can't be evil at all and more people are adopting that, then it's okay to not have to push the Bitcoin agenda or the crypto agenda because it's already ingrained. Maxine, you've you've brought up something that is very close to my heart, and I and I have this conversation with with a lot of people, and I'm happy that you brought it up. Um, a lot of companies and people in the space that I talk to still believe that, or not still believe that, um, have forked their opinion. So there's like two prevalent opinions. There's one that you said, and that is that we need to keep building for the non crypto industry. We need to. You know, stop building products, not just for internally, but we need to keep growing mass adoption and bringing people from the outside. And to do that, you need really good user experience. You need high privacy and security. But then there's a lot of people now that say, hey, we've been we've been doing this for a decade almost. I think we can start building. I think our space is big enough for us to focus on and building products and companies and infrastructure internally for our community already of crypto mm-hmm. people. Um, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're at a point where we should even be competing companies like super, you know, because you look on crypto Twitter today. There's like, I mean, people are vicious with each other, like savage. It's so (laughs) bad. Um, But it used to not be that way. It used to be that you wouldn't attack people's families. You wouldn't do that. And it would be, and I miss those. Yeah. Yeah. And it used to be that the, the, you know, as much as, listen, imagine if I started a direct competitor to you, you know, in the same place and we go for the same comp, the same users, the prevalent, uh, opinion back then was we're going to compete for, we're going to compete in, you know, together, we're going to compete with someone else. So we're going to basically grow the pie together and then compete when the pie is big enough. But for now, we're not going to like work together, 
but we're just not going to be vicious and tear each other down because we want to continue to grow. You're an ambassador of the industry. I'm an ambassador to the industry. If I make you look bad, you know, on crypto Twitter or whatever, if I put out negative ads about you, then I'm going to look bad because I'm also an ambassador because you're representing the industry. That's not the opinion anymore. How do you feel about that? Well, the thing is, I think that, um, I mean, I might be wrong here, but a lot of the people who are quite vicious on Twitter and they're kind of like fighting for market share, which I think is so ridiculous because the market in crypto is small compared to other industries, like by, by hundreds. And the fact that they're compete like they're competing over like such a small piece of the pie for me is kind of laughable because there's so much more opportunities out there, but it really depends on which part of the industry you're looking at. If you look at kind of more of the money transfer side of stuff, where we all have each other's backs, like BitPesa, Bloom, SCI, uh, and, you know, a handful of others. There is no viciousness because we are too busy building this freaking infrastructure that it takes to get these people on board. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it is interesting. I think maybe people get vicious because you start getting hyper competitive, and you get hyper competitive when there's just not enough food around, right? So maybe that's why. It, that's kind of what's going on there. I agree with you. And I think it's that a lot of people made a lot of money very quickly. And so, you know, how to handle that kind of emotionally is a little bit different. But if you know, you notice, you know, a lot of people on crypto Twitter and some of these other places that are yelling and fighting and tweeting seven times an hour, they're not really like doing anything. Yeah. Um, and the ones that are doing stuff are not the ones that are fighting. But that's why you have this vocal minority because they have the time to fight. Yeah, and you see that in politics, you see that in everywhere at the moment. But, you know, I think the thing is, is that we will see where the cards lay. And it's definitely not going to be the people fighting on Twitter that are going to get, you know, the 2 billion people unbanked, like having financial services. It's not going to be them. And that's totally fine. Um, but I think something that really irks me about it is people go online and they see that kind of minority, that vocal minority, and they think, oh, that's crypto. And it just really, like, it really gets me down because the thing is, crypto is so much more than that. And I remember back in 2014, you could actually have a proper conversation about cryptocurrency. Like, when I was learning about crypto, my, you know, there was none of this, like, Twitter crap or anything like that. It was just pure signal. There was no noise. And right now it's just all noise and it's so hard for the average person, even on an entrepreneurial sense, to break into the industry or understand what's going on because of how it's being represented online. Do you feel that when you joined the industry, um, because you were so young, you still are very young, but do you feel like you're not jaded in life as much as other people? And because of that, you're, you, you allow yourself to experiment or try things that other people may say no to just because they're they've been through life and they've been screwed or jaded or whatever yeah i mean i definitely remember early on um you know i i had met some other entrepreneurs that were probably entrepreneurs like later on in life compared to me and i just remember they were like so angry with the world but then i realized that you know they have responsibilities and at that time i was just you know, I had just left university. I didn't have a family or anything like that. I'd ha I had like no care in the world. I really had nothing to lose. Um, but I, I typically don't have a very jaded like perspective of the world. I think that the world is like life is beautiful. I think people are beautiful. It's just you have to be able to find those opportunities. Um, 
but I think it's all about mindset. And I do meet very jaded entrepreneurs, like even at the beginning when there were other people in the space and I would talk to them about, you know, the hardship of doing what we were doing, but I was never negative about it. And they would just be like completely slumped over, like writing articles about how horrible the industry is and how like nothing's there. But here I am and here's my team and my co-founder. We're here like almost six years later. There's definitely something here. That's so interesting that you say that because I feel like, um, you know, as the years go on, uh, people do people do get jaded in the space. Um, but you, you know, you started this company in a place where uh, experience, it, experience what you did before, who you know, how you know them. Uh, is very much, you know, prevalent on 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 opening doors, right? Um, when you started this, you were first out of university. How did you, you know, how did you build credibility? How did you, uh, how did you allow people to take you seriously um, when you were trying to make relationships or open doors or get into meetings? How did you do that? I think you just have to be the best. Like, you literally just have to be able to get your foot in the door, which you, in Hong Kong, it's a little bit different. In Hong Kong, it's like this networking frenzy where it doesn't really matter like how old you are. It's just as long as you know your stuff and you're able to meet really high up people at like a freaking conference and they're just right there in front of you and you just have to be able to talk to them. But I think Hong Kong is a bit of a unique place where it is extremely easy to network here. I don't know why it is, but it just is. But I, I think the thing is, is that as long as you can deliver, then you become a trustworthy person in the space. And back then, you know, there was no, there was no, everybody was interested in crypto, but there was not that many people who knew about it. So you kind of become like an oracle of sense, being able to, you know, share what's going on. And I never felt like, you know, my age or anything like that really affected that because people were, especially investors, were just so interested in knowing about, you know, this new technology and what was going on. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, it was definitely because I broke into a completely new industry where there was absolutely no foundations to be laid. So, you know, you end up being kind of the bricklayer of sense. You, you kind of paved that way. Did people uh, discount you or think of you as an underdog? Um when you're, you know, laying these tracks for this industry? I've never, I've never felt that way or I've never had that issue. Um, I have spoken to other people in the space that, you know, have felt kind of dismissed, but I never feel dismissed. I kind of am very comfortable with what BitSpark has built and what we've achieved. Uh, we were the first to launch a uh, Hong Kong stable coin and a Filipino stable coin. Like we're a very innovative company that knows our stuff very well, especially on the technical sense, but also on the adoption sense as well. We just have a very clear sight of where the North Star is. So I've never had that issue because our mission is just so clear that there is no kind of waving from that. Yes, there's experimental stuff and all this type of stuff that, you know, you just kind of go through and failures that you go through having a company, but it, it's never really um, affected the site of the company. I still feel like um, I'm discounted. I was hoping you would give a little bit of a different answer, <laughs> but but I appreciate the honesty. Um, why, why do you I feel, feel like, discounted? Well, I you have to understand, like when I got involved in a space, I was so young. I was I'm probably your age now. Um, and and when I got involved, but then you know my whole history happened, and so I'm like constantly having to like climb stairs yeah. and 
convince people with credibility. But I like being the underdog because I don't want people to... It's like when you go play poker. Imagine if you're like an amazing poker player and you walk up to a poker table and all the other poker other poker pros on a table are going to look for the fish. Mm -hmm. And these are the ones that they're going to consider are the worst players and they're not going to play as well trying to get our money. Now, I'm not a very good poker player, but imagine if I was, if I could somehow convince other players that I was very bad, the longer I can do that, the better of an edge I have. So that's almost how I like to go through life. And I'm hoping that, 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 Oh, actually, I'm not hoping people don't listen to this episode, but... Uh, I but hope they listen I'm to giving, this episode. <laughs> no, they will, they will. But I'm giving away a secret here. I'm giving... I'm serious. I'm. This is something serious that I, mm. that I, that I, you know, I, I hope... I don't hope, but I, I, I guess I don't mind it as much when I walk into a room. And I'll give you a story about how confidence really... People don't realize. So you, you haven't said it yet. You haven't said the word confidence yet. And the fact that you haven't said that word in the past 49 minutes means that you have a lot of it. And I'll tell you why in a second. Um, But essentially, the story that I have for you is so um, like you, I've never really held a real job before. You know, I had some retail jobs. I had some stuff before at some startup, but not like a real career. I never worked at a bank. Um, And so when I first got out of prison, um, I needed a job. And so basically my whole life was like a slate that had to be wiped clean. And yeah. so I had to basically get a job, you know, sight unseen without any job experience. Um, and so you can imagine I'm literally sitting in an, my, my wife got me a, uh, a meeting at this restaurant and that's, that's all she could get. So I had to convince the restaurant owner in that meeting to hire me or else I have to go back and live at a halfway house, Crazy. which sucks because it's an old state prison. Yeah. So I'm in this meeting and he looks at me and he says, Charlie, why should I hire you? And you know what? I looked at him and I said, and I, was, I let a silence go. And I said, I'm fucking the best dishwasher you'll ever have. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, what do you mean? And I said, did I stutter? I'm literally the best fucking dishwasher you, you will ever have. I did. And it was a silence. And he didn't ask me why or how or anything. But because I was so serious about it and I looked at him dead in the eyes and I said, Jim, I will be the best fucking dishwasher. There's not even a question. I will stake my life and my money on this that you, the little money I had, if I, I will be the best goddamn employee that you will ever have. And he looked at me, hired me on the spot. I, now, I that doesn't think, always work. I don't know. I think it works a lot more. If you're really put on the spot like that, which I think it doesn't happen that frequently, but if you are, you really have to make sure that you've got that convincing power. It's true. It's true. And so, um, building that credibility and doing that over the years. So now it's a little bit different for you. Do you, um, do you ever get like, do headhunters ever call you up and offer you like insane jobs that you've ever said, like you say to yourself that I can never get these jobs if I hadn't done what I've been doing for the past six years? Yeah. I mean, not anymore, but I definitely know that like earlier on, probably the first two years or so, um, you know, I was starting to be in the circuit a lot more, People like knew the history of Bitspark and all this type of stuff. And I would get job offers, but it, I always just felt like they were um, like, it was like a compliment to get a job offer, but I would have never, ever even thought about taking them just because I was just so involved and dedicated to what I was doing. But definitely like if I did not build Bitspark with my team, my life would be very different and I would not be able, I, I think that it would be less likely for me to be able to have the opportunities that I have now. 
So the two the two common denominators, the two things that everyone says, uh, actually the one thing really that everyone every guest has said, and it really takes a true leader to say this, is that my team, like even CZ from Binance on the show, talked about his team constantly. And I said, dude, I, I'm here to talk about you. Um, but he would just go through, he would constantly say his team, his team, his team. And so that's really nice that you say that. Um, and I'm sure they appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like my team is, you know, yeah, like I might be the one that's mostly talking about the company, but they're also the ones who have built the company. A lot of them have been there since very early on in the company and have gone through the same hardships that, you know, as the co-founders do as well. So I'm so incredibly blessed to have a team that is dedicated, understands what we're doing. Uh, some of them aren't even from the crypto space in itself, which I think is amazing. Some of them don't even have uh, a background in finance. And, you know, I, yeah, I'm just, what can I say? I'm proud of them. Maxine, you, um, we've learned from this episode that you're very passionate. We've learned that you work very hard. Um, we've learned that you have an amazing team and that you don't take no for an answer. Can you tell us more specifically what type of just, I mean, example, like what type of online tools do you use to be productive? There are only 24 hours in the day. How do you maintain a healthy work-life balance? What work tools um, do you use? Give me some tips. Like what work tools can I use online to help my, you know, to make the show more productive? I'm obsessed with productivity and I've gone through nearly every single productive tool there is. And I, I don't know. Not one. Is... There's one that I use that you haven't used, but I'll let you go first. Well, the thing is, is that I've used almost everything and I've gone back to pen and paper very recently, but I will give you kind of my top three that I was using before pen and paper. Um, Notion, uh, Gyroscope, and then also Trello. Those three are, yeah, it was kind of like the trifecta. I found that the only way Trello works is if everyone, like it's, decides to follow the religion like it only works if everyone does it if even one person doesn't do it trello falls apart yeah i mean the thing is trello is just for me um you know i like to organize my thoughts and everything i like to do and also oh. just kind of like my life or do you mean on the company side either um i like using friends have you ever used friends yeah yeah we use Rambox as well is that the same thing it's very similar it's kind why of why like do you use aggregate. one over the other well, I think it was just Rambox was the first one that came out. And then Friends is kind of like the second iteration of that. I like Friends. <laughs> I will look into no, Friends like, as well. <laughs> yeah, I like, I, liked, I, like using, I like using Friends. Um, the last subject I, I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to read a quote that you, that you said. Um, you wrote a few years ago, you said, at the end of the day, it's a choice um, to enter an environment that may not reflect you, but you being there is a change. Um, and you're talking about the growth of women joining the industry. When you said this quote, it was probably a little bit different. Um, and now you see, you see the the industry changing a lot with more uh, women in crypto. Is that something that we should be paying attention to? And if yes, are we doing it enough? This is always such an interesting question that I. I know get. I don't like asking it. No, but I, you've written and talked about it a yeah. lot, so I feel like I should have. And I think the thing is, is that. Um, I'm, I'm all about merit. So, you know, just like as a general rule, I, I never go to gendered panels where it's just women only, like women in this and women in that, because I felt like when I had first gotten started in the industry, I was only celebrated for being a woman, but never for what 
like me and what what I had built. So I kind of feel as though like right now this like over over analyzing the fact that somebody is a woman rather than focusing and answering well asking questions about what they've built has become kind of like a hindrance on women in, in the space. Um, but I am so incredibly pleased to see more and more women building products, getting involved in the space in any which in which way that they can. But yeah, I kind of feel as though, especially just for me, and this is, could just be my own perspective. I would be, I would prefer to be asked about what I've been building rather than what it feels like to be a woman. Because to be honest, I've never really thought about it. Um, and I'm happy I didn't lead off with that question. <laughs> yeah, it's listen. Like I don't want to be on your like girl list. You're right because it. Be, I, I think it's weird. <laughs> I think I agree with you and. And so on this show, we've released 37 episodes, and I forget, uh, I think we have a pretty good even balance of, of, of people that represent all different, um, you know, all different, uh, you know, races, gender, sex, everything. Um, but the specific reason why I wrote down, I, I wanted to ask you that is because you've, you've, you have this opinion about it. I knew what your opinion was in advance. Um, and, and, and it's an interesting opinion because I kind of agree with you. I feel like it, it's good to point it out, but it almost does a disservice because it takes away the merit. I, yeah. I, I, I think like, I agree with you. I can't say that in public, although the show is public, but you know, whatever. Yeah, it's but my I, fucking show. So <laughs> I kind of feel as though it kind of um, puts you, it's like, oh, like you're doing really well in your group. But really, if you look at like the larger group, a lot of it isn't just women. It's like men, it's other companies, it's other races and all this type of stuff. So it's, I just feel like people should be kind of, if, if it really is about comparison and all this type of stuff and like, you know, who's doing well because of merit, then it should be in comparison regardless of your race or gender or anything like that. But that's not, that's not me ignoring the fact that, you know, racism and sexism does happen. I'm not ignorant to that. It's just that I think that if you're particularly as an entrepreneur, I dictate my my entire existence. I, I dictate my life. So I really understand that there are women and people of different races that, you know, they are experiencing, um, yeah, a, a complete, um, how do you say? It? Yeah, they're, they're not experiencing equality like they should. Um, but I do think that there's something to be said. Like, you know, it's totally fine to have a... It's both. Yeah, it, it's Basically. both. It's both. And it's important to to follow both, but at the same time, you know, extremes in anything is no good. Um, and I guess on the subject of merit, um, you've been really, really, really out there promoting your business, but on the ground. And so I've I've been following your BitSpark Cash Point events. You've been doing those, and you're going, you know, you're doing it online, but you're 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 going to country by country, um, almost like, a, almost like a, um, like you're doing like foundational work, like, like charitable work, teaching people about crypto and then convincing them to come on and become a, a cash point for you around the world. Um, do you, do you think doing that 
and getting individual people to allow them to become part of your infrastructure is a better idea than partnering with companies. We talked about this originally on, but what's the future of your company? Do you see yourself having millions of people becoming cash points? Do you, uh, do you, do you think you could go a different route? I mean, what's where do you see the company in five years? The reason why cash points are so important is because they enable PDP finance and PDP finance is owned by the individual. So when something is owned by the individual, it means that there's less likelihood of a company, you know, having to compromise because of, you know, their partnership with a larger company. So I think that, you know, PDP is incredibly important. Cash points are incredibly important. And really what I'm hoping to see for BitSpark and what we want to build and what we are building is this model of it doesn't matter if you're a crypto person or not, but being able to become a cash point be an entrepreneur. Um, but of course, you know, we have about half a million cash points now, and some of them are through these connected services that we connect to on APIs. But the only issue with that is that they're still kind of a middleman and they're not within the BitSpark system. So in the future, we want to make BitSpark entirely end-to-end and completely cut out these types of third-party services that our customers are using at the moment. Um, but really it is all about the individual. It's about empowering the individual and it's about making sure that cryptocurrency is easily adopted. Maxine Ryan, you are the COO and co-founder of BitSpark. You guys are doing Satoshi's work. Um, thank you so much. Bringing on adoption, mass adoption by people all over the world. Um, I hope to meet you soon and thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm happy we were able to do this. Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offert. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers. And information is power.